Good morning, everyone. My name's Lucinda, and I'm going to be reading from the Bible for us this morning. So today's uh, Bible reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, and we're reading from verse 3 to 14. So chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Before we start, though, I'd like um, us to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, your loving plan. Before the world was created, you already knew us and loved us. We pray with gratitude for all the blessings you have given us. Strengthen our faith. Help us to love one another with understanding through all the change that happens around us. Let the hope that you give us be a guiding light in our lives. Help us to walk in the assurance that your love and plan directs each step we take. Open our hearts and minds to your presence right here with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right. Well, good morning again. Welcome back to our series as we work through this question of what you guys want to know. As we've said every week, we polled you guys back in term two. What do you want us to preach on in term four? We then put all those nominations out there for you guys to vote on. And these are the top nine thereabouts. So we've done some others in some different spaces, uh, things that you wanted us to speak to. And it's, you know, we've been looking at lots of different things, some heavy stuff and that sort of thing. So it's nice that this week we get a nice light one in what does predestination uh, mean for us. Uh, If you've never heard that word before and you just picked up on that nervous laughter, buckle up. Uh, Because this is a question, right? Predestination, uh, we'll we'll define it properly in just a minute here, but this idea that God is sovereign over all things, particularly human salvation, uh, can get to be kind of a heady academic thing. It can seem a little disconnected from some of our everyday experiences and that sort of stuff. But the truth is that actually has some deep pastoral implications for us, especially when we look at the hard and heavy stuff happening around the world. And so when we look at at Israel and Gaza right now, if you ask the question, if God has predestined this, can he really be good? That's, That's a deep question that goes to the heart of who God is. 
And at the same time, if you don't believe that God has predestined this, what comfort or hope do we have that he will ultimately triumph over this sort of evil? And so while, yes, we're going to do some heavy lifting today in terms of our thinking and that sort of stuff, that, the question, what does predestination mean for us, is a really good one because it pushes us to actually bring it home to what does it matter. And the truth is that it matters because it helps us to understand how God has worked in this world and how we can make sure that we uphold him as good and loving and just, even though some of the stuff that we think about in this space can really push us to think hard about that sort of stuff. So, so that's what we're going to do today as we think about these. Now, to do that, I really want to uh, anchor what we're talking about today in some scriptures and really in some big ideas that we get from different parts of the Bible because the doctrine of predestination is not the place that we learn about these key things about God's character that I want to share with you first. And so I want to show you these other parts of the Bible to give us a framework for thinking about who God is primarily based upon what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, okay? And this will all make sense as we go along here. So I'll try and go slow, try and bring us along with it. Uh, But let's just anchor ourselves in these truths about God before we start to to get into some of this bigger stuff. So the first one is God's justice. It says there from Psalms, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Similarly, in Romans uh, 3 there, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. When we talk about God and we think about who he is, we think that God is just, that God is a God of justice And primarily we see this in the way that he has acted through what Christ has done, Christ paying the price on the cross for our sins. God is a God of justice. He does not simply let sins go unpunished. He does not simply dismiss sins. There is a price to be paid for sin, and we see God's justice most clearly displayed for us in the sacrifice that Christ make. Next up, we've got God's love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we want to know if God is loving or not, the place that we go to to look at is the cross. We see the sacrifice that Christ willingly made for us, and we see in that his love for us, his people. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of God is seen in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then also we have God's goodness. Just briefly on this one, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus, the one who willingly dies on the cross, declares that God is good. He is the only one who is truly good. So, Big picture framework, things that we, you know, our, our tent poles, the, the things that we want to anchor ourselves in when it comes to thinking about who God is, our assurance of God's love, goodness, and justice comes through Christ. Okay, those are the tent pegs, those are the anchors that we need to have in place if we're going to think well about this tension that we see in Scripture, because there is a theological challenge for us to wrestle with. All right? Because it would seem as though the scriptures talk about two things that are at least in tension with one another. And the first one is when we talk about God's sovereignty. Now, when we talk about sovereignty and predestination, these are kind of interchangeable terms. Technically speaking, God's sovereignty refers to God's control or ordination of all things. And when we think about predestination, that sort of typically narrows the focus down so that when we talk about God predestining things that pertains to salvation... But the truth is, these terms do get used a little interchangeably, and unless I tell you otherwise, I'll use them interchangeably today, okay? We're dealing with this idea of how much has God brought all things to come to pass? Is there anything which he hasn't brought to pass that that he's left to human choice? That's sort of the, the question that we're looking at here. So God's sovereignty in Scripture, it says here in Ephesians, as we heard from the reading, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Sounds pretty straightforward. God's in, contra- in charge of all things. All things happen in accordance with God's will. Similarly, in the Old Testament in Job, we see it says, 
when he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it, he confirmed it and tested it. The movements of nature, everything that's happening in the world, all in accordance with God's sovereignty. And when it comes to matters of salvation, we also see that God appears to be at work in a very direct way. So when it comes to salvation and God's choice, again from Ephesians, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. When God operates in salvation, he chooses people. He does so in accordance with his pleasure, in accordance with his will. Very much seems like a God thing that's happening when people are saved. Same thing in 1 Peter, to God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. God seems to choose who gets saved or not. And yet, then we look at these other scriptures that seem to make salvation a matter of human choice. So go back again, Old Testament, Deuteronomy there. The day I call the heavens and the earth, today, sorry, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Similarly, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, therefore we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There seems to be this tension. On, on one side, it seems that Scripture is saying that God is in control of who is getting saved, and yet in these other Scriptures, it seems to be a matter of what humans choose that's determinative for whether or not somebody receives eternal life. And just you know, to really make it fun, uh, we can see some Scriptures where these two things are basically at tension within the one verse. So salvation and God and human choice together. From 2 Peter, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort, that's you, you people, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. That's God's voice and God's choosing of you. So you work to make sure that what God has chosen happens. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. Similarly, in Exodus 7, Old Testament again, God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And then in the next chapter it says, but when Pharaoh saw saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord said. So so which one is it? Is it God hardening his heart? Is Pharaoh hardening his heart? There's this tension that seems to exist between what God is choosing, what God wills, and what people are willing and choosing. How are we meant to make these things fit together? Now, to foreshadow, according to my foreknowledge, uh, what's going to be happening a little bit later, I'm going to look at the Bible's response to this in the passage that I think speaks to it most clearly in Romans 9. But I'm going to put that aside for now. And instead, I want to introduce you guys to a a couple of of different ways that people through history, since the the Reformation, so that period that we looked at last week in the, the 16th century, how people have tried to answer this question. So a couple of opening bits of information for us to think about here. So the doctrine of predestination, what we're talking about today, is our attempt to reconcile how the Bible describes God's sovereignty and human choice, which we've just seen seems to be in some tension with one another. All right, and these are two words that if you've been around church circles, you might have heard of a little bit. There's two big sort of systems of thought that try to wrestle with this. One is called Calvinism, the other is Arminianism. But it's really important that if you... In hearing these terms, have thought in terms of, oh, Calvinism's about predestination and Arminianism's about human choice or free will. That's not the way to understand this. Both Arminianism and Calvinism are attempts to explain how God's sovereignty and human choice fit together. So that's uh, John Calvin, who we looked at last week, okay, uh, and the role that he played in Presbyterianism and the Reformation, all that sort of stuff. He's the guy that we get the Calvinist name from. Arminius, Joseph Arminius, sorry, Jacob Arminius, uh, awkwardly enough, was Calvin's son-in-law, who came up with an entire doctrinal system that goes against his father-in-law. So if you thought you had trouble at, you know, Christmas dinner, um, look, that's nothing, all right? So, important to recognize, okay, that these aren't actually compatible. 
All right, I hear some people sometimes talk about this. Oh, I'm kind of Arminian here, and I'm kind of Calvinist there. And See, there are these key things where there is differences of opinion between these two systems of thought where you lean one way or another. Now, I just want to say really clearly, the goal of this sermon today is not to convince you to go one way or the other. I'm presenting both here for you guys to think about. I'm going to tell you why I'm a Calvinist, okay? But my goal here is not so much to try and convince you into one of these. It's to give you the stuff that you need to think through it well uh, and to explain to you where my conviction lies and how that influences what happens here. But I want to be really, really clear that while these are not compatible with one another, you, you will lean one way or the other. Both are Christian and both honor Scripture. That's something that you'll hear in some spaces where one side will look at the other and say, oh, well, if they really believed in the authority of Scripture, then they'd be on our team. Anytime anybody makes that argument, you should be really, really sus on that person. Like anytime anybody says on any issue, well, if you believed the Bible, you'd be with us, just be real careful at that point. They could be young and immature and not really know any better, uh, or they could be foolish and old, which is worse. All right. Um, so uh, just to prove the point that this is just not a Calvinist perspective, uh, Roger Olson is a, a modern-day Arminian uh, at the University of Baylor, he says this, I reject any hybrid of Arminianism and Calvinism on crucial points of soteriology. That's a fancy word for talking about salvation. Uh, Nevertheless, to say that only one honest scripture is wrong. Neither tradition is the gospel itself. Both are fallible attempts to interpret the gospel and scripture, and both can honor them even if one or the other is wrong at certain points. So I think there's a certain humility that we should have here as we look, about this, look at this. And it's really important to remember as well, there's lots of important uh, questions here that we're going to wrestle with, but there's points of agreement too. So some of the questions both Calvinists and Arminians are trying to wrestle with, how do God's sovereignty and choice fit together? How does God's sovereignty and the existence of evil fit together? What role does human freedom play in salvation? These are all questions they're wrestling with. And there's lots of agreement between them. So, for example, both believe in total depravity that we talked about a little bit last week, the idea that everything is tainted by sin. Both believe that salvation is a gift of God. God is the sovereign creator and loving redeemer. Salvation comes through Jesus' sacrificial death and victorious resurrection alone. You know, I should add that word in there because both, because they, I mean, as the cabinets mean different things by that, but they both believe it's, that it's by faith alone that we're saved through Jesus' work on the cross. And both believe that predestination and election essential to understanding salvation. All right. How are we feeling? Are we, are we, are we like, whoa, <laughs> this is a lot yet? Okay. You guys had coffee this morning, right? I hope so. Um, all right. So let, let me give you some, some big uh, overall statements about each position, and then I'm going to work through each a little bit more slowly. So on the Calvinist side, a summary of Calvinist teaching would be this. All things come from God, exist through him, and ultimately exist for his glory, including the smallest of things and even, and this is crucial, evil things. In God's wisdom and sovereignty, from before the foundation of the world, God mercifully chose to save a certain number of people, the elect, from among sinful humanity. He does this through human choices, which he treats as real and as having moral consequences. Okay, now, I know that's a lot. Hopefully that would make a little bit more sense as you work through it, but I think it'd be good to hear it all together. And then, on the other side of the equation, we have Arminianism, which would say that God is in control of all things in the sense that God achieves his overall objectives, but he decides not to control everything in order to preserve human freedom. While salvation comes to humans by God's sovereign grace alone, this grace allows human beings to freely accept or reject God's offer of eternal life. So we talked about a little bit last week about this idea of irresistible grace being a foundational uh, sort of cornerstone for Calvinism. That's the idea that if God chooses you, you will be saved. Okay, he's going to work in your heart, give you a new heart, and you will be saved. For an Arminian, what they believe in is not irresistible grace, but rather what's called prevenient grace. What that means is, is that God restores you back to a place where you are able to choose God. Remember, they believe in total depravity too. They don't believe the, the sinful human can choose God without God working in them first. But they believe that God restores their heart to a place where you now have the ability to choose, and whether you do that or not is up to the person to decide. That's what our minimum position is. 
So let me work through it in our meaning argument from Scripture so that you guys can sort of see where they're coming from, uh, and then I'll do the same thing with Calvinism. All right, now, I'm working really hard not to be cheeky and make jokes because I'm really sensitive about not, uh, you know, I, w- I want you guys to know that I really do uphold both of these as scriptural positions. Um, but if I slip, just remember, it's all tongue-in-cheek, um, and we'll go from there. All right, so a key idea in Arminian theology is that free will or freedom of choice with regards to salvation means the power of contrary choice. Now, why is this important? It's because people mean different things by free will. Uh, Some people, when you talk about free will, they just mean the the power to choose whatever you want to do. But we all know that's kind of a myth. I can't choose to be a bird. Bird can't choose to be a cat. You know, our, our choices are limited. We all sort of inherently recognize that. What they mean is, when they talk about free will, is that you could choose to do something different from what you do. That's what it means when we talk about free will. It's the power of contrary choice. You don't have to do the thing. You could do something different. All right? Uh, If you're looking for a good book on this, um, where I'm getting some of this stuff from recently, again, this is Roger Olson's book uh, called Arminian Theology, Myth and Reality. It's not so much an argument for Arminianism as much as it's simply him trying to explain. You've probably heard some myths about Arminianism. This is what it actually is, and I think it's actually quite a helpful resource if you want to go and learn some more on this. Um, So, why is the power of contrary choice or free will such a big deal for Arminians? Well, they say, if there's no free will, then our salvation is not a gift, but a fate imposed upon us, and others' damnation is not truly deserved. Because if it's something that God's done, how how could they be um, deserving of it? Adam and Eve's fall into sin was part of the plan of God, uh, controlled by God, and that would make God a moral monster. So if there's no free will, that means that God was responsible for the fall. It's all controlled by him, and that's immoral for God to do that. Thirdly, if there is no free will, then if God imposes salvation on some without their free assent and cooperation, then the love they have for God is not genuine. Because love that's not freely given is not real love. And to this, we could also add questions about whether we're just puppets, sort of, you know, what, what's, what sort of sense do we have real personhood if what we're doing has all been uh, controlled by God? So they would say this. To the degree to which God gives us freedom, he does not control human affairs. He sets up general structures or an overall framework for meaning and allows creatures significant input into exactly how things will turn out. Specifically, he gives people the choice of whether to follow him or not. So, for example, if they want to go to Scripture to, point, uh, to make this point, they'd look here at Deuteronomy 30, and they'd see where it says, God saying, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering in to possess. They'd point at the scripture and say, well, look, this is really clear. Like, it's, it's on you. Are you going to walk in obedience or not? Your choice is going to lead to a consequence. That's God saying, the ball's in your court. goes on, but if you turn your heart away and you are not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods, you will certainly be destroyed. Same thing on the negative side. He also said, they'd also say, as God does not control everything humans do, he is grieved by their choices at times. This explains when humans sin, why God feels sorrow over this. It's because it's not what he wanted. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. That's from the story of Noah. Similarly, Arminians would say, the Lord does not want any human being to perish and wants all to choose a relationship with him. So it says in 1 Timothy, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so the Arminian would say God predestines certain aspects of the future, but leaves other aspects for free agents to determine. And we can see this in the life of Abraham. So this is just a a concrete example of how they would read Scripture. God told Abraham he would become the father of many nations and would be given a great land. That was something God promised Abraham was going to happen. God has said, I'm going to bring this to pass. So we see there, uh, oops, sorry, actually my scripture, uh, I'm going to have to jump forward. Uh, yeah, so God told Abraham he would become the father of many nations and would give him a great land. And I'll jump back, sorry, got that a little bit mixed up in my order. That's what that thing was we were talking about the data team before where I got mixed up. Uh, 
All right. So then God says to Abraham, after he promises this is what's going to happen, he says, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. So God says, I'm going to bring this to pass. But he also says, Abraham, you need to do these things if this is going to happen. And the thing is that there are a multitude of free decisions needed for Abraham to go to Canaan, for God's people to be slaves in Egypt, and for Moses to lead them to the promised land before God's promise was fulfilled. Yet God foreknew what would happen Hence the prophecy and the promise. Okay? He told him it was going to happen, and it does indeed come to pass. And it's all in accordance with this whole principle, as we've just seen before from the same scriptures here, that he is doing this through the choices that people are making. So the Armenian would say God's desire is not to control everything. And it's seen in the ministry of Jesus also, who sought to spread God's kingdom by opposing demons and sickness. These things must exist against God's will. So for the Arminian, the vital thing is to preserve the fact that humans have real power to choose, that there is free will in that sense of power to choose otherwise. And whatever God has prophesied or promised, he is going to bring that to pass through human choice. In his sovereignty, in his great power, he is going to bring those things to pass through human choices, but he's not controlling them actively. That's the idea there. All right. Hopefully that's kind of clear. So that's the Arminian side. This is the, the Calvinist side. This is how a Calvinist would read Scripture in different points, okay? So a Calvinist would say, God is the omnipotent creator of all things, who is sovereign over all things. Not all things except for human free will or small things or even evil things. So the joke that I would make if I wasn't being really sensitive right now is that when Calvinists read the Bible, they, they believe what it says. But um, that'd be cheeky and mean. And all, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. This, this is the thing, though, is that this is a dividing thing. It's about which parts of Scripture you need to explain in different ways, and that's what both sides are trying to do. So when Calvinists see all things, they think it refers to everything from the smallest of things through to even evil things. As it says here in Romans, for from him and through him and for him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, there's not, not looking to you know, slice out any of that and say that it wasn't part of God's plan. All of it was from him. Similarly, Old Testament, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done. Right? It's a very strong statement of God being in control of all things and God compared to people and how that works. Next up, Calvinists want to say that God's plans are immutable. They cannot be changed. That's what the word immutable means, unchangeable. So it says, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will happen. Right? What God has decreed, it is going to take place. It's not open to human choice. It's not, it's not qualified. It's what the Lord has planned. That is what is going to happen. God's sovereign will encompasses even the decisions people make. People may attempt to make their own plans, but the Lord ultimately determines what they shall and shall not do. So it says in Proverbs, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Similarly, in Proverbs, many are the plans in a person's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Right? So there are these scriptures that seem to speak about God's sovereignty working even on the level of the human heart and human decision. So the Lord operates his sovereignty on the level of the human heart, which again we saw from Pharaoh earlier. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. But we've seen already that that's chapter 8. Back in chapter 7 it said that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. So even on the level of the human heart, God's sovereignty still seems to be at work. And this is particularly the case when it comes to the gospel. It's only through God's work in a person that they make the decision to accept the gospel or not. So Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. It's about God's choice and who is saved, not the person's choice themselves. And like I said before, the Bible does even explicitly say that evil things are decreed by God. Again, Proverbs, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked 
for a day of disaster. And in the book of Amos in the Old Testament, does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And so even when it comes to these things that we would look at and say that that's a horrible thing, that's a bad thing, that's an evil thing, in some sense God stands behind it. Now we'll try and parse that out a little bit in a second. But again, there's just lots of scriptures that make this connection. So again, in Exodus, then the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So people's inability to do things, people not flourishing in the fullness of human physicality, again, that is the Lord that stands behind this. And he said, naked I come, came from my mother's womb and naked I would depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And one of the best things in the book of Job is seeing that Job's commitment to praising God no matter what has befallen him, despite the fact that he perceives that God is behind all of the bad stuff that happens to him, he chooses to praise God no matter what God does in his life, whether for good or ill. And the Calvinists would say that this is not incompatible with God making moral judgments of his people. Even though God stands behind all these things, that doesn't mean that people are not to be responsible for the choices they make. So I could literally, hundreds and hundreds of examples. Here's just one. Sorry, that's not the uh, book of Job. That's from Samuel. I'll try and get that reference for you properly. Uh, So Eli uh, said to his sons, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Know, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. His sons did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. They're being punished for their choices, but at the same time, God stands behind this. This was his will that this was going to come to pass. Okay. So it's at this point uh, that I just want to acknowledge that uh, (laughs) I think on on a human level, Arminianism feels like the friendlier choice, right? Like, it, it, it feels nicer. The idea of preserving human freedom and saying that this is where, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of hard work to try and keep this idea that, that we're, you know, making our choices because it gets God off the hook when it comes to this idea of God's connection to evil and hard things in our lives. But I want to say is that the reason that I hold to to Calvinism is because there's all these scriptures that make these connections really strongly. And so if I'm going to do the the hard work and the heavy lifting, it's going to be the side I'm trying to explain how those things can be as scriptures say, and God remains good. So let me turn now to Romans 9, because again, I, I think that this is the central passage. I have no stronger argument than what I'm about to put before you as to why I think that the Calvinist system is a better way of explaining what we see in Scripture. Again, not with the intention of necessarily convincing you that this is the way, but because, like I said, this does have all sorts of pastoral implications, and certainly the way that we minister here as a church is going to you know, follow along with this. And I know that that might be something that we need to have some more conversations with afterwards, and that's totally okay. But I think it's good and proper for you guys to understand where this comes from and, and why I would hold this conviction. Um, and hopefully we can get to a point where we can see the, the goodness in it. So let's have a look at Romans 9 here. In Romans 9, Paul has been uh, just gotten finished with his massive explanation of how the gospel works in Romans 1 to 8. He spent lots and lots of time explaining how the Jewish people were really blessed to have the law, that they had lots of good things through the history of their people, but that now that Jesus Christ has come, salvation is through Christ alone. That's, that's what he's been laying out for them. He's answered a whole bunch of hypothetical questions. And now that he gets to chapter 9, he is really concerned about his fellow Israelites. I think that he's writing in Romans to Jewish Christians because I think all the questions that he is addressing are questions that more naturally make sense for a Jewish Christian to be asking. And one of those questions is, if salvation now comes by faith alone and not by being a part of Israel, God's Old Testament people, what about all of those Israelites? How could this possibly be that God's Old Testament people are not coming in droves to the gospel? Lots of them did, but lots of them definitely didn't. And so Paul fundamentally is trying to answer that question first. 
He says, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. I love my fellow Israelites. I wish I could trade my salvation for theirs. But he wants to remain really true to his teaching and make it clear that salvation is through faith and not by birth. And so he says, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, from the Old Testament people, are Israel, God's chosen people for all time. In other words, uh, it's not the children, sorry, this this shouldn't be in italics, this is not scripture, this is me. (laughs) In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children who are promised that are regarded as Abraham's offering. No, wait, that is the Bible. Sorry, I get confused sometimes between my word and sorry. Um, (laughs) Jokes, jokes, jokes. Been a lot of work. All right. Uh, So the whole point, it's about faith, not birth. He also wants them to know that God chooses who to save because of his purposes and not because of any human works. He says, yet before Jacob and Esau, uh, two Old Testament twins, uh, were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Rebecca, their mother, was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. To make his point that salvation comes through God's choice and not human works, he turns to this example of these two twins who are in the womb together, and their mother is told the older is going to serve the younger. This has been foreordained. Before Jacob or Esau had done anything good or bad, while they were still in their mother's womb, God made this choice. And his whole point is, is that this choice was made not because of anything they would do or have done, but by God's purposes and plans. And the thing is that Paul knows this is going to feel like this is unjust. Through Romans, he keeps on asking these questions. He'll make a statement, and then he's like, now you're probably going to ask me this. And he does so again here. And so he says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? If God's not choosing based off of merit, if he's not basing it off of works, good or bad, then can we really say that God's just if he's just acting in accordance with his own purposes? Paul says, no, not at all. But he is going to explain this in a way that is surprising to us because it's a completely sort of different framework to work with. He says, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What's he saying here? His argument is, it's not unjust for God to do this because God has always said this is how he operates. God's always said, that I choose according to my own purposes. I've never promised you differently. I've never said it was going to be any other way. The essential argument that is being made here is that God as the creator has said that he would always act in accordance with his purposes. So to say that he is unjust is to judge him by a separate category that doesn't really apply to him. God is being faithful in accordance with what he always promised. That's why we know he's just. He does what he promises. God is simply doing what he always said he would do. He gives the example from Scripture again. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to ask, whom he wants to harden. And then Paul again asks the question, that we're all thinking. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? All right, this, and guys, this is really, really important here, okay? When I, when I say about it, I have no stronger argument to offer you for why I think Calvinism is a better explanation of this problem than anything else. It's because this is the point in Scripture where this question is asked most clearly. It's a fundamental part of our interpretation of Scripture to let the passages in Scripture that speak clearly to an issue be the primary, question, be the primary text that we consider, and then we read everything else in light of those things. Now, sometimes we might disagree about which one is primary, but I don't think there's any doubt in this case that Romans 9, this is the question. How could it be that God can choose things in accordance with his purposes? He has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens the heart of the one that he wants to harden. How could this be... 
and have God still not be at fault? Because if he's in charge of everything, who can resist his will? How is this just is the question, right? This is scripture asking the exact question that we're looking at. How can God be in control of all things and human freedom and human choice be explained in the light of that and God still say just? And that's why I started with this whole thing about reminding you that we know God's justice and God's love and God's goodness, not through the doctrine of predestination, but through what Christ has done. God's goodness has been shown and proven to us through Jesus coming into this world and dying on the cross to set us free from our sins in order that we might have eternal life. That's how we know God is just and good and loving. And you have to keep that in mind when you see Paul's answer here because his question, sorry, he's answered the question of how can he still find fault is this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? Paul's response is that we cannot question God in this. We have no right to. And that challenges us on a fundamental level. Because we, at different points in time, are very happy to magnify God and talk about his greatness and talk about how wonderful he is and talk about how big he is. And we talk all the time about, you know, he's created the universe and how small our place is in it. And we magnify him in all these ways. But we have to fundamentally understand is what that means is that we, as his creatures, we as the clay which he has chosen to mold into different shapes, have no right to then turn back to him and say, why did you make me this way? Why did you do it this way? That is to fundamentally misunderstand our role as his creature and prideful of us to question God's goodness and justice on the grounds that we don't understand how these two things can be true, that we are both responsible for the choices that we make and yet God is in control of all things. That's the tension that Scripture leaves us with very, very deliberately. Now, this is what I want to say gently. Arminianism sees that tension and I think to a certain extent is, is not happy to leave it where Scripture actually encourages us to leave it. Scripture says there is no answer here, but make sure that you do not put yourself in a place where you judge God. And I'm not suggesting in any way that, that Arminians are seeking to judge God or put themselves above him. But what I think they do is when they see this tension between human, free, between human choice and God's sovereignty, they preserve human freedom at a level that I think Scripture doesn't. That desire to hold on to a certain definition of human freedom is not something Scripture is keen to do. Scripture is keen to hold on to the fact that God is the one who is over all things. Because this is the place in Scripture where this question gets asked most clearly and the response is, Ooh, don't, don't judge God here. His goodness has been shown in Jesus. His love has been shown in Jesus. His justice has been shown in Jesus. Don't make the mistake of now trying to put yourself above him. And along with that, Paul offers two closing thoughts. And it's very important to recognize that it says, if here... Like the if is important. Paul is not definitively saying that this is what he has done. I think it's certainly pointing in a certain direction, but you know, that if is important. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul puts forward this possibility. Maybe the reason he's created these vessels of destruction is so that we might know something more of his glory. That those on whom he does choose to have mercy will know something more of him and will be able to glorify him more through, through knowing him in this way. And so ultimately Calvinism says that two things can be true and we don't need to know exactly how these things are reconcilable. God ordains all things to come to pass and human choices have real weight and humans have true agency and moral worth. 
And that's the tension that I'm okay to live with. I think scripture upholds both of those things. Now, let me offer you a, a slightly lighter analogy just before we get to Pastor Earlier what this means for us. To try and help you understand that we're actually not unfamiliar with this idea of these two things being true. Now, what's the rule with analogies? Analogies always break down at a certain point, okay? So take this for the, the small point that I'm trying to make here, which is that you are, as people, familiar with the idea uh, of a creator and creature not sharing the same moral reality. Now, if I've shared this with you previously, don't call out and spoil it for everyone else. But let's, let's bring Harry into this. Now, um, <laughs> all right, for those that are Harry Potter fans, okay, uh, who killed Harry's parents, James and Lily Potter? Voldemort, right? Okay, not, not, a, not, you know, not a trick question, but is it? Okay, because... Well, we all know Voldemort is the one that killed Harry's parents. No question about that. Super crystal clear, right? And we all feel a great deal of catharsis when we get to the end of that book, okay, the seven books. If you haven't read it by this point, no, sorry, spoilers, all right? Uh, and Voldemort receives the consequences of his choices. We read this and we're happy to see that the one who killed so many people receives punishment for that, literally none of us say, but didn't J.K. Rowling also kill him? But she's the author, right? She ordained everything that came to pass in that story. Now, the reason I use Harry Potter is because it's so beloved. We, we know those characters. There, there's a sense in which they've, they've become real to us on some level. They're so well written and all that sort of stuff. And this is the thing. In her creation... There's a sense here in which, although she's ordained all things to come to pass, nobody then points the finger back to her and says, well, she should suffer for Voldemort's, death, for Voldemort's actions as well. Because while she might be remotely responsible for that which happened, within the moral universe that she's created, it's the characters themselves who are responsible for the choices they make, even if it's been ordained by her. And so we could say again, in a slightly different language, two things can be true. God has written the story of everything that happens in this world and the people in this story make real choices, have real love and affection, even if it's been ordained. So, very last thing, because the question is, what does, what does predestination mean for us? And I've taken this as an opportunity to expand on this stuff and hopefully give you guys a chance to think it through. Here's where I think that we land, practically. God is in control of all things. I was talking to... Uh, one of the baristas uh, where I get my, my coffee during the week, and he was asking, you know, what, are you, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, predestination. He's like, what's that? So I said, you know, explained it briefly, the idea, you know, is God in control of all things or, or not? Uh, and he said, oh, that's really interesting. About, you know, how could you look at all the evil things in the world and think that God is in control of everything? So I explained Arminianism. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> But he's, he made the point of the, you know, like just, but the point that he made was that how could you possibly think God was in control of all things as you look at what's happening in Israel and Gaza and that sort of stuff? And I said to him, you know what the funny thing is? That's the perspective that we have when we're not in suffering and pain, but so often the people who are in suffering and pain, the idea that God is in control of all things is a deep, deep comfort. That when you're in the midst of trial and suffering, the knowledge that God has ordained even these hard things to come to pass, but that he is going to bring good things through them, that he is going to use them for his glory and for our good, that is an incredibly comforting thought and idea. And so upholding God's sovereignty is not something that we do without concern for people, but rather we establish that as God is in control of all things, that as we experience pain and suffering and difficulty, we can have great confidence in knowing that the God who is good and loving and just has done this, and I can take comfort that this is all in accordance with his plans. All things happen according to his plans and purposes, even the bad. It means that no pain or suffering or trial can thwart God's will. Whatever we're going through, he is here with us. All of the promises of God still remain. Pain and suffering can be the very means through which God achieves his purposes. And what we need to do as people is not try and explain 
how we can preserve human freedom, but rather to take a heavenly viewpoint of everything that happens in this world. To see things from God's perspective and not simply from ours. We keep acting, we, we, guys, we make choices that really matter. Like, this thing, scripture is super clear on this, right? Our choices matter. Right? Some people get really weird about this. They're called hyper Calvinists, okay? And they're like, you know, because God is in control of all things, we don't, we don't do mission, we don't tell people about Jesus, because God's just going to do what he does. And they, and they sort of take this foolish, passive stance. So, that would just, you know, whatever. No. We recognize God's in control of all things, but we also recognize that he treats us as people make real choices, and we live in accordance with that. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, this has still been a fairly brief and succinct look at this. If you were hoping to hear about amoralianism and moralism today, that's cool, we can talk about it later. Um, there's lots still to talk about, pastorally and biblically, if you want to go there. But more than anything else, I want us to be a people that, that trust in the sovereignty of God, that trust in his goodness, his love for us in Jesus Christ. And as we pastor and minister here to one another, we can continue to push back into saying that, you know what, whatever happens in this world, God is true and good, and he's going to use all things, good or evil, to achieve his purposes for us and for this world. And there's great comfort in that. So let's pray now. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done. Thank you, Father, that you planned and predestined him to come into this world. The plans of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unchangeable. That the good that you want to accomplish in this world will come to pass. And as we wrestle with the painful and evil things of this world, as we wrestle with how those things can be in your good plans and purposes, may we do something from a place that always remembers our place that remembers that you are God and we are not. That, that we would live with that tension. That you treat us as people who make real moral choices and those choices matter and that we should respect that and live in accordance with it while at the same time acknowledging that all things are in your hands. May we proclaim the gospel knowing that you will save who you are going to save. May we be rejoicing in the privilege that we have to be your agents and vessels in this world to do your works and purposes. And may we do so with that anxiety about whether we are puppets or not, knowing that, that you have affirmed that we are like your son Jesus, made in his image, and that we live in accordance with your plans, and we are deeply thankful for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.